The 2016 legislative session is about to begin, and Senate Minority Leader Joe Kebney has some thoughts on what will unfold over the next few months. The St. Louis Democrat joins us on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight, seven, six, six five, five four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. I say, hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio, as always, is... Joe Manis. And making his return to the Politically Speaking Podcast, we have as our special guest... Senator Joe Kevney. Uh, Welcome back. This is your third and a half time being on our show. You have not reached the fourth time, which is occupied by uh, former House Speaker John Deal. (laughs) And I'm pretty sure that nobody wants to reach that point because if they do, they have to resign in disgrace. Now, um, Senator Kevney is the uh, Senate Minority Leader, so you're head of the Democrats, the the, the small but mighty. That's right. That's correct. So, how many are there now? Now that the Lavota has resigned, there are eight of us. Eight. Of, so, um, eight is enough. Eight. <laughs> what is that going to mean for your caucus now that you only have eight as opposed to nine? Well, obviously, it's a little more work, and you and you have to come together as a caucus to agree what fights you're going to have and what fights that you're not going to have. Um, you have to be a little more strategic. So our listeners should know that there are 34 members of the Missouri Senate, although there are a couple vacancies, and uh, but that means that everybody else who's filling a seat is a Republican. That's correct. And, um, you know, I think that the goal for your party in 2016 is— you know, I, I assume that the Lavota seat is going to be filled by a Democrat. It's a heavily Democratic seat in the Kansas City area. So you'll at least get back to nine. I think the goal is to maybe get back into double digits. And there are some potential seats that you could pick up, especially the one that's being vacated by Kurt Schaefer. Is that, is that your assessment? In as Columbia. Well? In Columbia. Yes. Um, when I first came into the Senate, we had 10. And then we went, I believe we went down to eight, and then we came back up to nine. Um, now we're back down to eight. Um, we would love to pick up the Columbia seat. Um, I think uh, there are other areas throughout the state that it may be a little too early, but um, the the population is, isn't near as red as it once was. Well, I mean, for our listeners to understand, until 2001, the Democrats had been in control of the Senate for about 50 years. That's correct. And uh, it switched in 2001 with the special election. And then since then, your the Democratic presence in the Senate has just eroded. It's done that in the House, too. But but it's just the, the Senate, which tends to be the backstop of stuff, is really eroded. I mean, it's gone fairly quickly from 17 in 2001 to... Um, the eight now. Eight now. And the Democrats are all concentrated in the two met- major metropolitan areas. What yeah. do you, why do you think the Democratic losses happened? Um, I think in the beginning, like any caucus, and you're going to see it with the Republican caucus now, um, there's a lot of infighting within their own caucus. As a result, the party suffers. I think a lot, some of that happened with the Democratic caucus. And then some of the major social issues happened um, where the Senate, the Democrats are, are opposed to, to some of the conservative uh, ideals that some of the population holds. For instance, gun, gun rights and uh, uh, choice for, for women. And um, we, 
it we need to do a better message to get our we need to do a better job of getting our message out on those particular issues because by and large we probably aren't that fall, far apart but we allow uh, the extreme fringe to define the conversation. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned that because one of the reoccurring themes I mention on this show every now and then is you had Democrats who were opposed to gun control and opposed to abortion running for some of these Senate seats, right. like in Jefferson County, like in southeast Missouri and elsewhere. And they frankly got demolished by the Republican opponents. And then you have, especially in the St. Louis area, which is admittingly, admittingly less conservative than rural Missouri, people who were unafraid to say that they were in favor of abortion rights or for gun control win, like you know Scott Sifton and Jill Shoup. I mean, is that a coincidence? I don't think so. I think it's 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 education and communication. I think uh, the the communication apparatus in the metropolitan areas is much uh, enhanced compared with some of the rural areas. And I think we haven't, as, as a party, we haven't done a, a spectacular job of penetrating those those communication markets but, and but, getting our message out. But kind of play devil's advocate, can you imagine a scenario where someone who is in favor of abortion rights and for gun control could win in, say, like northeast Missouri or southeast Missouri or any other rural place? Uh, I can't say that uh, currently, but quite possibly in St. Charles, hmm. quite possibly in Warrensburg, uh, quite possibly in Springfield. Um, I could see Democrats making inroads in those areas. We'll kind of get to it here. Uh, this is the governor, who's a Democrat, last leg- legislative session. Basically, with these veto-proof majorities in the House and Senate, as far as Republicans go, the Democrats in the Senate often end up being the backstop. I mean, you guys are right. sort of the the final frontier, the final but, but, roadblock. But less so than when Matt Blunt was governor. Because yes. what I think you have the luxury now of doing as Senate Democrats is you can filibuster things that you think— are going to get overridden. But if you know that the numbers are not there to override it, you don't necessarily have to filibuster to death because the governor's veto is the backstop. Right. We watch the votes in the House very closely. Mm-hmm. But my point is, is that you guys are kind of, you know, the governor's only hope in some ways because the Democrats in the House, through no fault of their own necessarily, but they're in such a small number. And the way the House works, they're sort of a, yeah, yeah, n- inconsequential. Right. And that's not necessarily true. The Democrats in the Senate is a couple a couple good filibusterers can really gum things up. We can really gum things up. And again, as I spoke on earlier, the 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 Republican majority is so large it gets fractured. So well it's not unusual for a group of Republican senators to come over to the Democrats and say, If you help me on this um, maybe we can work something out further down the line. Now, one of the big issues that I know incoming, actually, he's not incoming. He is the House Speaker. House Speaker Todd Richardson wants to focus on his ethics. Yep. And he told me over the phone last week that some of the things that he wants to focus on are uh, lobbyist gift bans, possibly a, a bolstered uh, disclosure reform for legislators, and also a revolving door ban on how quickly you can become a lobbyist after your legislative service. Um, what's kind of your feeling on those type of issues and any other ethical overhauls that may come down the pike? Well, I think we need to pass an ethics bill. Um, I would like to see campaign contribution limits in that in that same ethics bill. Um, the problem with the ethics bill is is sometimes they get so large that um, there's always a reason to, to vote against it. Um, so I, I know uh, 
there have been a couple of single subject ethics bills filed in the House. And that very well might be the best approach if we can keep them single subject. Um, that being said, I think if, I mean, some of the transgressions that happened last session, an ethics bill isn't going to address. Um, so we have to decide what are the issues that are important. You've named two or three of them. I threw another one in. I think we need to address all that. Now, I don't know if we can do it all in the same year. That's a similar refrain that I've heard from many Democrats that it, any ethics push without campaign finance caps is insufficient. Can you explain why that is? Well, I didn't say it was insufficient. Um, I just – I understand First Amendment right, free speech. But when we have no limits at all, it it it's not that that person's – that's getting those huge gifts or contributions is going to win that race. But it makes an unviable candidate very viable. Mm -hmm. So we waste a lot of time and resources on an unviable candidate. Yeah. So that's the importance of the campaign contribution limits. Now, as Jason and I and others have mentioned, of course, the Democrats are somewhat fractured on that issue because the right. – the, Missouri Attorney General Chris Actually, Kasser, I'm, the only, I'm glad that you mentioned that. Who is the only major Democrat running for governor? Koster has said for years that he's not necessarily in favor in of campaign donations. We laws. have a clip of him saying that right here. The the thing that worries me most about campaign finance um, proposals is that they have the un, many of them have the unintended consequences of creating more dark money and chasing money into the shadows. And that, to me, is, is um, a corrosive, unintended consequence. I believe that is actually a clip of Joe asking him a question about it. So how do you deal with that when you've got the guy who's likely among those at the top of the ticket next year who has that view, and then you've got the governor who, when I interviewed him last week, reaffirmed that he really liked to see campaign donation limits come up again, does it cause problems within the caucus as far as, well, let's not bother to push for that. Let's, because our own party split, let's push for whatever, into the revolving door or whatever. I'm just interested in your thoughts about this. I don't think it causes a problem. Um, I mean, he, the lieutenant governor, or the attorney general makes a very, very good point. It does push... Uh, it does decrease the, the, the transparency of, of some of these uh, contributions. Um, to what degree, I'm not sure anybody has the answer for that. I think I'll leave it there. I, I, that's a tough question to answer. Well, I have a more broad question. Why hasn't the attorney general's position on campaign finance caused more alarm in your party? Because every time we ask Democrats about it, not necessarily you, they kind of just are don't really seem to react to it, yet it seems to me if he becomes governor, he may become the most high-profile Democratic figure in the entire country that opposes campaign finance limits. I mean, what's your thought on that? Well, um, the, the Attorney General's uh, educated, bright guy. Um, obviously, he, he feels that um, the lack of contribution limits leads to more transparency, uh, increased transparency. Um, we disagree on that. Um, I think, I think a, a, um, I think a reasonable limit 
um, that not only encourages candidates to get out in the public and be a, be a better public service. For instance, myself, I represent about 175,000 people. If we had campaign contribution limits, I'd be at every neighborhood meeting just getting out and asking for the vote. It's a natural tendency when you not out asking or when you don't have any problem raising money that you're not out in front of people. Um, and I think that's why some of these some of these larger statewide single source funded candidates don't win because they're not out pushing for the vote. Um, it, it only takes so much money to get your 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 uh, message out. So I think there's a place for campaign contribution limits. Now, how um, – because many people have noted the, for the fact that Missouri is the only state in the, in the union that has no donation limits and no limits on lobbyist gifts. Yes. And So, okay, if you take donation limits off the table, that means you're focusing on lobbyist gifts and the revolving door and other stuff. What are the what's the likelihood you think that that'll actually get some traction this session, or will it just be talked about and nothing happens? I think there's I think there's a a very real possibility we'll do something with with lobbyist gifts. Um, I'm not sure about the revolving door, um, and um, what was the third one? <laughs> um, I don't know if there was. Why do you why do you, why do you not see anything happening on the revolving door? Well, okay, we've got. We've got 197 legislators up there. Um, they make a commitment for to serve. Uh, I mean, they're term limited out eight years in each house, so 16 years. You get a, a and I'm not going to do that. I only serve eight in the Senate, but you get a young man in there that can serve 16 years, and this is all he's ever done. When he gets to be 40 years old, you're going to put him out on the street with nothing to do. Um, that's a conversation we need to have. Well, does it is it influenced at all by the fact that okay, you've got several several uh, former top leaders in the House and Senate who are major lobbyists? I mean, you know, you've, I mean, you can name them off. You know, you got Gibbons, you got Flotron. Aside right. from Tilly, right. you know, Jetton had done it previously for a while. I mean, you've got he was a consultant, consultant, but still. And and we should note that while Dempsey's name gets mentioned often. I don't believe he is registered as a lobbyist in Missouri. I no. believe he's only going to be a lobbyist in Florida. Well, he, for the time being. For the I, time being. I interviewed him a few months ago about that. But I do want to make being, that clear. But continue. It's Florida, but he may end up here eventually. So my point being is that you've got a number of the people re roaming the halls who are either former leaders in the House and Senate or prominent members. Well, you got, you know, Kelly now is, Chris Kelly, who's now been doing some lobbying, doing some lobbying. And, and he'd been a critic of, of not having these limits but he's out there so uh i'm just wondering does all of that the fact that they know so many of these people firsthand that that they used to serve with them and they see them now making good money as lobbyists does that sort of uh maybe stymie the discussion on ending the revolving door i can't say that i mean i have i haven't made that same conclusion um this is my seventh session coming up um, I think Tom Dempsey is the only one that I've served with that is going to be a lobbyist. Um, Bill Stouffer. Bill Stouffer, yes. yeah. Um, so, um, but I think in the Senate anyway, it's more the exception than the rule. Um, and quite frankly, Bill's old enough to retire anyway. Yeah. Um, he, 
he's doing it just to keep busy. That's I, all he knows. I think the other question about revolving door bans, and it's been kind of brought up in, on a federal sense, is they're just not effective because people may not le- register as a lobbyist, but they can become like consultants or they can basically be a different title to where they're basically still lobbying, but they're not lobbying. And I'm just wondering if that's going to occur if they put a two-year ban in. Well, I, I think the conversation about the ban needs to be what problem are we trying to fix? Um, and no one other than people on its face finding a legislator resigning and going straight into lobbying, on its face, I think uh, the general public thinks that's somewhat repulsive. Um, but, you know, there are so many lobbyists up there and so many different issues. Um, I mean, if we, if we define the problem that we're trying to fix, I think we could very easily put through a ban if, it, if, we, if it's perceived to be a problem. But to ban them just because you don't like it, I think, is, is a, different, uh, a different cat of a different color. What do you see as the top issues that are going to come up this session? Oh, the top issues, I think, I think the paramount issue is going to be voter ID. We're going to spend a lot of time on that. Why? Uh, uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, I think the Republican Party, uh, they're pretty solidified around the, the voter ID, the picture voter ID um, topic. I think we've already passed it twice. I think we passed it once when I was in there. Um, but, of course, it would have to either go on the ballot it's, it's, you have to pass a statute and a, and a constitutional amendment. Correct, and yeah. a constitutional amendment hasn't passed yet. So even if they well, were to pass it this session, it would have to go before voters. It's got to go before voters. And the last constitutional amendment, it's not that it didn't pass. The ballot the, language was thrown out. Yeah, correct. But the point is basically the state Supreme Court was telling them they needed to change the Constitution if they were going to do this. That's correct. And so then you have to do that and then you do the statute. So even if they get it on the ballot this year. I mean, you're still talking about several years down the road before it gets through. Now, how big of an Which, issue— Which, by the way, in a state that the federal government doesn't recognize our IDs. Yeah. Well, in fact, that's what, I, that's what I was getting to, about this real ID issue. I mean, how serious do you think it's going to be? Are legislators going to deal with it, or are they going to not? I think I think that as much as, as bravada has been— voiced about standing up to the federal government against real ID, I think by the end of session we'll, we'll, we'll have that issue addressed. Well, I, 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 when this issue came up, it brought to me another question. So if our IDs are out of compliance and maybe the legislature decides to change the ID requirements, is everybody who has a Missouri driver's license going to have to get a new one? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I, my understanding is the issue is the source documents. Okay. It's not the underlying license itself. Okay. Because I could imagine, like, in either sense, for example, let's say you don't change anything but you can't get on airplanes. Yeah, that's a huge inconvenience. But if you have to make changes to where you have to, like, refile documents or even get a new card, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of people who are going to have to do that. Millions probably, yeah. Maybe even millions. Well, and it costs the state a lot of money, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, so I'm seeing, like, there's going to be an inconvenience no matter what here. Put yourself in – I mean, let's take Phelps County, where Fort Leonard Wood is. A lot – a major portion of that county is employed at Fort Leonard Wood. If they can't get on base because their license isn't any good, they aren't going to be happy. 
Um, that's why I think there's going to be a lot of pressure to do it. Now, what sort of source document changes have to be made? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's, admittingly, I, I, I consider myself an expert on many things, but driver's license uh, regulations is Because not I know they already require, I mean, like I, I'm mine's going to be due in a month again, and I'll have to show. Um, a birth certificate. I would well, yeah, but not only that, you have to show your marriage license. Yeah, marriage if you're license a woman. as well. Yeah. So the other thing I wanted to ask if it's going to be an issue, and, it's, and we're recording this on January 4th, so bear with me when I ask this question, but um, about the Rams stadium. And I, I, I mentioned that date because on January 12th and 13th is when the Rams could potentially relocate to Los Angeles. If that occurs, then I don't foresee there being any legislative issue involving the stadium or state funding because it's, it's kind of moot. But as of now... I don't see a scenario where Stan Kroenke can get the votes to relocate unless he teams with the San Diego Chargers on their stadium, which means they're going to be coming back here and looking at the stadium proposal that has been kind of hammered out by the governor and his task force. And my question has been to legislators whether there's going to be a limbo period between the time the relocation is potentially rejected and by the time the owner of the Rams may or may not agree to this financing plan where the legislature could block the governor from um, basically issuing bonds for the stadium without a legislative or statewide vote. What's kind of your, your, your feeling on that? Well, I, I, think, I think there'll be a lot of clarity if the NFL stays to their timeline and makes a decision in January. If they push it off till, till May or June or July, I think the, the, the picture gets a whole lot more complicated. Um, I do think, um, and I believe the governor when he says that the existing statute gives him the, the, the flexibility to issue the bonds. Um, I also think um, with uh, the current General Assembly that they will they're going to tighten up that loophole. Now, I want to play a clip from your, your colleague from the city, Jamila Nasheed, who's a state senator, a Democrat, who I believe district encompasses the new That's stadium. Correct. And she was not one of the people that signed the letter that Rob Schaff was circulating. But when we asked her on our show about her thoughts on this, she had this to say. You know, I think we are going down a slippery slope, okay? When you incur debt to the tunes of millions and millions of dollars, and the public will be the ones to have to pay that debt, then how dare you not give them the right to vote? I mean, that's what democracy is about. Now, and we also had former House Speaker Tilly on that show. He made the remark that it speaks a lot of volumes that the senator that represents the place where the stadium is going to be is not really on board with what the governor may do, and that's issue bonds without a legislative or statewide vote. Doesn't that send a pretty big message that Maybe the governor is going down a, a treacherous legislative path here. I would say, well, yes, I think it does send that message. Yes, um, I think the governor um, is in the last year of his term. Um, I think there's an. I think uh, he's he's going to have a rough legislative path, um, no matter what he does. Now, um, I don't. You know, as for a vote of the people, I think the existing bonds 
didn't go before a vote of the people. That's, that's understandable. And I don't think there's going to be a statewide vote on this. But I think a more likely thing would be a legislative vote to right. approve the And bonds. I think it did do that. Yes. But, you know, I mean, and I'm not taking a side, but as you mentioned, this is his last year. Um, so he can sort of, there may be some people on both sides who want the stadium or whatever, and they may ask him basically to take one for the team. You know, so he does I, it. The legislature gets all uproar, but what are they going to do to him? Right. Because they and he don't necessarily get along anyway, that, so it's not like it's going to sour relations. That's or an anything. excellent point. But I don't believe you signed that letter that I mentioned I didn't either. Sign a letter so, either. so, so, are, would you be in favor of the governor issuing the bonds without a legislative vote? You know, um, I would love to have had a legislative vote on the thing. Um, this is a very Number one, this is the most overridden governor in state history. Mm -hmm. He doesn't get along with the General Assembly. Mm -hmm. I think he made a calculated choice that, you know, if, if we're going to do this, it's not coming through the General Assembly. I think that's one of the, okay, I don't think he would outright and say that, but one of the assumptions of the reason he's going down this path is a practical consideration that if he put it before the legislature, it wouldn't pass. Right. So this is why he's kind of going down this other road, which may actually potentially, there's a lot of what-ifs that get to actually building the stadium, but it's a potentially easier way to actually get it done. But it, it might not be one without a lot of consequences. So. Well, and not only that, I mean, right now, um, the whether the Rams stay here or not is in the hands of the NFL. If none of this had occurred, they wouldn't even got to this point. Uh, it, it, it would have been a moot point. And, and the Rams would probably be gone. There was also a debate here in the city about whether the, the Board of Aldermen should vote or whether there should be a citywide vote. The Board of Aldermen did end up voting on that. And, you know, it wasn't like the most clean or easy process, but it was one that resulted in some compromise and some changes to the plan that even some opponents liked. And I just wonder, like, maybe if it went through the legislative process, do you foresee something similar happening where maybe some former opponents would maybe compromise to get the bonds issued? Or is it just like there's no possible way of that occurring? Well, I mean, the Board of Aldermen is 28 Democrats. I just sat through last session uh, 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 probably a two-day filibuster over raising the gas tax two cents. Um, very conservative, very very rural versus urban. Um, I think it would have been a fait accompli coming through the General Assembly. Now, switching to a couple other issues, do you think right to work will even come up this session? I don't think so. Uh, not until um, they, not until there's some evidence that they have the votes in the House. Is it going to be one of the things they may wait for the, gov the gubernatorial election to, to occur before pursuing again? Pretty much. Yeah. I would assume that. It, it didn't work out so well for him last time. So if there is a Republican governor and you are still in the Senate in 2017, is there going to be any way for the Democrats to stop right to work from becoming law, given that they used a PQ when there was no legislative path? But now if they had a Republican governor, is it just pretty much game over at that point? Uh, you know, um, I would say that it's the hill got a lot steeper for us. Um, you don't want to say, no, there's no way that we could stop it, but it would be very, very difficult to stop. Now, how big of an issue do you think the whole Planned Parenthood abortion stuff might be? I mean, 
Uh, you've got Kurt Schaefer, the state senator from Columbia, who's running for Missouri attorney general, who's been holding these hearings. And apparently he's going to continue to hold stuff. Right. He's trying to bolster his conservative credentials. You've got his Republican opponent, Josh Hawley, who's also emphasizing his conservative credentials on this social issue. Missouri's been, there's been abortion debate bandied about the General Assembly for at least 30 years. So, but my question is, it has been difficult for some Democrats, especially Catholic Democrats, to deal with this issue. So I'm just wondering, um, is this something that could become a big thing, or do you think there's going to be just a lot of debate and nothing happens? Well, in my own mind, we've done. I mean, we've, we've passed about as many restrictions on abortion as I think is allowed by uh, the federal court decisions. I don't think we could get them very much uh, tighter. And quite frankly, there's a couple, I think, if, the, if someone were to file a lawsuit and if it were to be adjudicated, we'd, they'd probably get thrown out. Um, You're talking about the 72-hour waiting period? Yeah, the 72-hour waiting period. They're, you know, I can see a court interpreting that as being unduly burdensome. Um, now, with regard to the University of Missouri and their affiliation with Planned Parenthood, I could see some some repercussions from a budget standpoint there. Um, I could see the chairman of the of the but appropriation committee, which is Kurt Schaefer, which is Kate Schaefer. Go ahead. Um, I could see them some kind of of of, of issue or some kind of action to address that issue. You mean what? Well, I mean threatening to withhold their funding or putting in a stiffer some so- ban in or so- what? Some sort of I don't know the answer to that. But when you when you sat there like I have, um, it, nothing really surprises you. Um, so I could see them be withholding funding, um, um, you know, a, a whole myriad of things. Um, but I think uh, I think the uh, I think the focus will be on funding. Now, Ron Richard, who's the new Senate leader, he said he did expect to see an effort to try to strip. Any Medicaid money from going to Planned Parenthood, again, for our listeners, it's from the federal portion, not the state portion. Right. And it's only for health care services that they provide, which is why it's been a debate in Congress. Some of the states that have tried to do it or have successfully done it have lost in the courts. Um, but Richard said he, he's hearing from some of his members they want to try it anyway. Do you see that coming up, and do you think that's something that the Democratic uh, minority in the Senate might take a stand on or not? I would say if that does come up, yes, we will talk about that for some time. Um, now, um, whether it gets to the point of filibustering until we draw a PQ, I'm not sure it goes that far. Um, but that's that's going to be uh, predicated on the circumstances at the time. Now, just for our listeners, PQ is a... Basically, it's previous question, and bottom line is it's a legislative maneuver to end debate. By the way, I pulled up this quote from 2008 that I just think is kind of illuminating. Um, it's actually from Kurt Schaefer. It was right after he won election to the Senate, and he said, it's one of the things that I ran on with the concept of convincing the rest of the Senate as well as the rest of the General Assembly that investment in the University of Missouri is not just an investment for Columbia. It's an investment for the state. So... I know this is probably more of a question for Schaefer, but if the Senate Appropriations Commit- Committee chairman holds up money for the University of Missouri when he came into the Senate basically saying he was going to try to protect it, 
Isn't that a little confusing to some well, people? <laughs> it's, I think it is. Um, and we have to be very careful here with this, and, and especially the, the, the Republican leadership. I mean, what we don't want to do is have an individual or a group of individuals in the General Assembly dictate to the university what they're going to get money on and what they're not going to get money on. So the other thing I wanted to do just before we wrapped up is talk about kind of the the Ferguson-related bills that didn't end up passing last session. Obviously, you had Senate Bill 5 that ended up passing. It's possible that, you know, there's a lawsuit unfolding and that may affect the percentage aspect of that. But some of the other things that didn't end up passing were changes to the use of force, a bill that um, I guess would make it easier for body cameras to be equipped at local police departments. And another one that was actually at the top of the list for the Ferguson Commission report was having a independent prosecutor come in whenever there's a police-involved killing. So given that the only thing that really passed that was really tangentially related to Ferguson was the Senate Bill 5, the municipal court curbs, how op- that was the only thing that passed in 2015. How confident are you that anything in 2016 will actually pass? I, I'm extremely confident that we'll do uh, that. We'll pass something regarding the use of force. Um, really, I am. I am. Um, the federal law already has us out of compliance, so we really need to address that. Now, we have to be very careful here. Um, the police officers are are under a lot of stress, and we need police officers. Um, so what we don't want to do is, is, is make the police officers the bad guy. Um, now, uh, the special prosecutor, we might even do that. Yeah. Um, but when you get to the body cameras, there's, there's all sorts of privacy concerns. There's, there's, there, there's storage concerns. That is a very complex uh, topic. And until that gets fully vetted, I'm not as optimistic on that one. I actually wanted to play a clip on the on the whole independent prosecutor angle because one of the people who is opposed to the independent prosecutor idea is St. Louis County Prosecutor Bob McCullough, who gained a lot of notoriety during the Michael Brown situation. And when he was on our podcast, we, we asked him about it. And one of the things that he talked about was if, say, the attorney general came in and, is, and was the independent prosecutor. This is a little bit lengthy, but this is what he had to say about that. The other is when you look at the attorney general currently, um, the attorney general's office has a a prosecution office that's about half the size of mine. They've got about 25 prosecutors in there who crisscross the state of Missouri prosecuting cases, which means necessarily they work very closely with law enforcement throughout the state of Missouri, in particular the highway patrol. Mm -hmm. So if that criticism is there that you're working too closely with the police, it applies to the uh, to the attorney general's office also. In addition to that, the current attorney general was the elected prosecutor um, for ten County, years yeah. in Cass County. Yeah. And the other thing I pointed out is what happens if I get elected attorney general next year? Now, I don't think Bob McCullough is going to run for attorney general next year, although stranger things have happened. But I think this his general point is, and I, I think it's one that I guess requires a response is that often the people that run for attorney general are people who talk about how tough on crime they are. They often try to get police unions to endorse them. And it seems like having the attorney general brought in 
may not really mitigate that perceived conflict of interest that I think the proponents of this want to kind of eliminate. What's kind of your thought on that? Well, you know, it, it very well may. Um, the uh, attorney general's office, and you don't see it so much in St. Louis and St. Louis County, but some of these outlying counties, uh, the attorney general's office handles all the capital murder cases. They call them in and say, we just don't have the the manpower to do this. So they do work very closely. And maybe the answer is 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 not have the attorney general do it, but we need to find some, uh, there's an opportunity there to have some kind of special prosecutor appointed. Yeah, and the other, the other quirk that someone else mentioned to me is I don't think the attorney general could come into the Kansas City Police Department because I believe because Kansas City has a state-controlled board, the right. attorney general is actually the attorney for the Kansas City Police Department. But, I mean, that could probably be worked out. So Yeah, I mean, it's going to be a very vibrant discussion. Thank you very much for joining us at all, as always. And uh, to close us out, uh, find all of our stories at stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at jrosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at jmanis. It's J-M-A-N-N-I-E-S. And you can follow the senator on Twitter at at Joe Kaveny, K-E-A-V-E-N-Y. Thank you very much as always. And until next time, so long.